The Insulone Podcast is brought to you by Cybionics, an emerging CGM brand that focuses on simplifying how individuals aged 18 and above monitor and control their blood sugar levels. Upon becoming available on the market, the Cybionics GS1 CGM has helped users worldwide navigate the complexities of diabetes management with more confidence and peace of mind. Thanks to Cybionics, now more people are able to view and share their real-time glucose data, receive customizable glucose alarms, and generate full AGP reports, all directly from an intuitive Cybionics app, empowering them with the necessary information to make better decisions about their health. Cybionics combines data accuracy and comfort of wear, which is important to us all, with a feature-rich app. The 14-day scanning-free and calibration-free Cybionics GS1 CGM aims to deliver reliable, seamless diabetes management experiences. For more, check out CybionicsCGM.com. This is the Insulone Podcast, where I, own Costello, try to redefine diabetes. In this week's episode... You know, when I was diagnosed so long ago, it was a death sentence. Yeah. You know, if you lived to 20 years with a disease, and that was great, but most likely you were going to be blind and all these other things. And you know, I just feel like I'm a true testament that that's not the case. But before we get into that, everything you hear on the Insulon podcast is from my own personal experience. And if you have any worries or issues regarding your diabetes please contact a medical professional. Now, let's get stuck into this episode. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Insulone Podcast with myself on Costello. I hope you're all well. Thank you for joining me for another episode. So I actually just got finished recording with my guest for this episode. But basically, we got onto the call, we started chatting, and it was just onto the good stuff straight away. So <laughs> I didn't feel it was suitable for me to interrupt our conversation to, to do a new intro. So this is my intro to this episode and I will cut in <laughs> the conversation that we had. So who you're going to hear from is somebody who is a fellow type 1 diabetic and fellow podcaster. She is the host of the Real Life Diabetes Podcast where she says it how it is. With regard to living life with diabetes, you'll hear her talking about it. She is the co-founder of the Diabetes Daily Grind blog, which launched in 2014. She has been living with type 1 diabetes for over 37 years. I definitely learned a thing or two from her. And she was born in Oklahoma, but now lives in Texas, Amber Kluwer. So please enjoy this episode. She is an amazing person, amazing diabetic, and very, very, very interesting to hear her perspective on things so enjoy i just want you to know that we would have taken you to diabetes camp if you wanted to go <laughs> i'm like what <laughs> like, oh, don't feel guilty you did the best that you could i mean so i get it uh yeah <laughs> had you been to a diabetes camp ever well according to my mother and my family uh, my parents i have two sisters Right when I was diagnosed, I guess that summer we went to a camp, but it was like just a weekend. And my mom was terrified because the campgrounds were, she just didn't feel safe. So we slept in the car. 
<laughs> and um, I have no recollection of that, but she does very well. Um, but that's the only one. And I have to say with all honesty is I don't recall knowing about any camps. I mean, this is a really long time ago, so I'm sure they existed, but, mm. but yeah. What about you? Have you been to diabetes camp? No, I, I had never even heard of diabetes camp like, until relatively recently. And the only thing that I had done in terms of education around my peers was like a two day course in my hospital in Dublin. Oh yeah. It was kind of like a crash course on diabetes. It was great. And it was cool to see other people my age living a similar life. But no, I've, I think, well, I was diagnosed older. I was 19. So I wasn't, I suppose, young enough to go to a children's camp. Yeah. But anyone that I've spoken to that has, has only ever had amazing things to say. Oh yeah, for sure. I've had the privilege of, um, I was an advisory board member for a a camp in my hometown of Oklahoma city and Ryan and I would go and judge and, you know, competitions and do all kinds of things. And I witnessed these kids and it just, and again, one of those things that kind of changed my perspective on my own diabetes because I was watching, you know, a seven year old whip out their tester and figuring out and everybody's counting carbs and all these things. It was really I'm going to say cool for me to watch. And at the same time, it's one of the reasons why I decided to go on a constant glucose monitor shortly after that camp was because I'm watching all these kids, kids dial into technology. And I'm like, what am I doing? If this kid can do it, I sure as hell can. And um, so I, I, I witnessed firsthand those kids getting together and seeing other people that look like them. So I, I totally get it. Yeah, it's a game changer to to see, I suppose, to go from thinking you're the only person in the world that, that has this yeah. thing because it's so constant it's, and it's just consistently on your mind to yeah. then be in, in a place or, or a camp or a football team or whatever it is with kids or, and teenagers that are just like you. Yeah. So you were diagnosed... 37 years ago, correct? Yeah, I'll celebrate my 38th anniversary this January. How does that feel? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, it ages me, absolutely. So I'm, yeah, in my mid-40s, because um, it'll be shortly after my uh, birthday. You know, it's, I got to say, and with the, some of the other groups that I participate in regularly, and, you know, speaking at JDRF events is, you know, when I was diagnosed so long ago, it was a death sentence. Um, yeah. So, you know, if you lived to 20 years with a disease and that was great, but most likely you were going to be blind and all these other things. And you now I just feel like, um, I'm a true testament that that's not the case. And yeah, I didn't mean to get emotional on that, but I remember when I was singing in a group recently, it was like every year it was like, okay, I'm still here what's next? And I think that's been a big driving factor in my life and wanting to do everything that I wanted to do because I've been given another year. I was listening to one of your podcasts earlier. I, I think it was earlier in the week with Ozzy England. I love her. And yeah, yeah, she's great. And she said something, you were talking about diversities. And yeah. For anyone who's listening, who 
doesn't necessarily know what a diversary is. It's basically the anniversary of the date you were diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. So I had always viewed it as a way of trying to make it a positive in your life. And she said, celebrating another year of being alive. And I had never thought of it like that before. I had always thought, this is my diversity. This is great. I'm celebrating something that is seemingly negative, but I'm doing my best to turn it into a positive. Yeah. And she phrased that in a way, celebrating another year of being alive. And it was a subtle reminder of how serious every day is with this condition. Yeah. And it's proved by you getting emotional now, thinking back to when you were diagnosed and how far you've come with it. Was there a turning point for you in terms of being a helpless eight-year-old in a sense to now somebody who is doing so much for the diabetes community, has her own podcast, has a very successful diabetes blog? Was there a turning point that you made that switch into from a negative into a positive? Yeah, I appreciate that. That's a really good question. Uh, Looking back, you know, uh, when I talk to my friends and family now so openly about diabetes, I never shared anything. And so uh, they had no idea as we were talking about that I was suffering in silence. And so this, I was an angry bubble, but I didn't really understand that it was about diabetes. I just had this weight on my shoulders that I couldn't explain. And through therapy and wellness retreats and all these other things, I just, you know, I was mentally changing my tune because I knew festering about anything in life was not going to be a good thing. Diabetes or not, it would kill me. And so um, I was in an event one day and I met a woman who uh, was, we just struck up a great conversation and uh, she talked about the fact that her son was about to go into medical school and that his focus was going to be endocrinology. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's so random. And I, and I said, I have type 1 diabetes. Like nobody in this room knows what an endocrinologist is unless you have you know, <laughs> diabetes or an ailment, right? And that so- magic word. <laughs> yeah, nobody wants to hear that word. <laughs> yeah. And she said, oh my gosh, I really think you should meet my son. So she set up a happy hour and I happened to meet Ryan before his parents showed up. And it was like, the world opened up and it was like, oh my gosh, have you ever done this? And we just started talking to And it was the first time I'd ever met anybody that understood what I was going through and who was an adult. And so life, you know, we talked about our tra- travels to Europe, the, the times that we drank too much in college. And there was no judgment. It was just like this realization. And so that's why, and I said, I'd wanted to start a, a, chil- a series of children's books about different decades in my life or different periods of time because no one ever in a doctor's office could tell me what it would be like to go to prom or to um, go through rush, you know, all the stress there and all the other things, rushes in a sorority. And so run a marathon, all these things. And so my friendship with Ryan kind of uh, flipped the pendulum in that we both had the same mentality that if we would have had those types of resources, we not only would have lived our life a little bit better, but the guilt and the anxiety and all the other things might have been curbed a bit. And so we wanted to offer that. So I will say that the turning point was meeting somebody else who had my same passion to help other people 
but also be real about what life is like and not sugarcoat it. You know, no joke and, you know, not intended, but um, (laughs) real life diabetes is exactly that because no one gives you a a manual Mm. and the pamphlet that you're given in the hospital or in their doctor's office. I mean, I remember asking at one point, hey, I'd really like to drink alcohol. What do you, you know, I'm old enough. What does this look like? And it was just a really ridiculous conversation. It wasn't realistic. And so... I hope that answered your question. It was definitely finding my voice and finding other people and building a community that has absolutely changed my tune. When you say that you had a conversation about wanting to drink alcohol, because I feel I've definitely had similar conversations, particularly being Irish. So I've definitely had similar (laughs) conversations with with my nurses and, and my endo in the hospital. What exactly did they tell you or what? were you recommended to do or how to drink? Well, I can't recall exactly because that was 20 years ago plus. <laughs> but I will say that at the time, and I'm this, you know, real life diabetes, um, I was drinking like shitty canned beer and, you know, college stuff. And, I, and then I really got into good beers like IPAs and whatnot. And it was, I couldn't figure out the blood sugar stuff at that time. Granted, I was just, you know, testing my blood sugar before I ate. And then I was having major crashes at night and I knew that I was high all the time. I mean, just so many things. And so they recommended like a really good bourbon or something that has low carbs and isn't going to spike your blood sugar and then other, your other organs kick in and then it bottoms out. So I learned the hard way a couple of times. And I think that was, you know, just a, I just wanted to be normal and experience college life like my friends were. And so I went on a bourbon phase for a while and, <laughs> and I'll just end it with that. I'll just end it with that. <laughs> <laughs> you, don't, you don't need to elaborate on that one. I think I know where I was going. Yeah. When I was diagnosed, I was 19. So I feel... Yeah, you were in the thick of it. Yeah. So that was kind of, that was one of my main concerns at the time was thinking, can I drink anymore? Can I go out with my friends? Can I go to bars? So that was one of the big worries that I had. Do you feel over the years through your diabetic life, there's been differences in attitudes around your diabetes and and the stigmas that surround it? Because I'm sure we've both heard the ignorant comments from people saying, well, the fact that they can't differentiate between type one and type two, and you ate too much sugar, that's why you had it, or you don't exercise, that's why you have it. Do you feel those sort of attitudes have changed at all? You know, I can only say, speak from, I'm going to say an outsider's perspective in that the people that I have the privilege of communicating with on a regular basis who have maybe had that type of discrimination and heard those ignorant comments, I honestly don't feel like I've ever been, oh, witnessed that personally that somebody said something like that. I mean, there are people maybe that are older, like in their elderly years that have made comments, but it was not in a negative sense. I think it was just ignorance. And as you touched on, and one of the things I try to fight on a regular basis is that type one and type two are so different. I hope in my lifetime that they're actually called two different diseases. I mean, Mm. um, I see the commonality and why the medical community has to do what they do. But um, so with that being said, I think that one of the things that we're both doing is using our voice to help crush that 
And, you know, I used to, when I started using my Dexcom in the very beginning, I was wearing it on my arm and I purposefully never let anybody see it. Now I'm like out and proud because it gives me the opportunity for somebody to see that device. And if they have a question or if I see them stare, I can just say, Hey, I know that you looked at my arm and I just want to tell you, I'm not a robot, (laughs) you know, or make a joke of it and say, I just, you know, I went through, um, gosh, this is the last time that I flew and I opted out, got patted down and I was wearing the Libre and the Dexcom. And I was showing the women who were doing the security check on my cell phone, what my blood sugar was for both (laughs) devices. And they're like, Oh my gosh, this is so cool. I have type two diabetes. Can I get this? And I'm like, yes. You know, so I would like to believe that the tune is changing and with type one diabetes now being talked about a lot more then we'll hopefully see that ignorance go down, I guess. Yeah. And it's, it's something that I've always tried to do too. And I proudly wear my Dexcom. Sometimes I, ideally I want to have it on my arm, but sometimes I have signal loss and it doesn't work as well (laughs) as if I have it on my stomach. So I like to have it on my arm to kind of show it off in a sense. And hopefully people are, are curious about it and they ask about it. So as you say, it's that opportunity to educate people around us and to outline what it is really and differentiate between type one and type two. It's, ah. <laughs> it's funny that you said about the security in the airport and how they were saying, oh, that's so cool. Because I always refer to myself 70 or 25% robot when I have <laughs> my Apple Watch on connected to my Dexcom connect, connected to my phone. So I'm... I'm half robot in a sense. And something that I saw on your website today was hashtag walking science project. Yeah. <laughs> which, which I loved. <laughs> Had you any idea the extent of the sort of science project that you were now being thrown into when you were diagnosed? Absolutely not. I'm still learning like the function of the pancreas and, uh, honeymoon phases. And I will say that because I take this, I'm going to say so seriously, but I love science. And so learning, and I'm shameless in saying that the, the podcast I'm about to release is so hopeful in the new CGM technology, the new insulin pump therapy. We are going to see a cure in the next 10 years from everything that I'm reading and the people that I'm talking to, but it's not going to be the cure that we thought it was going to be. Um, I don't even know what your question was, but no, continue. I'm loving this. All I'm hearing is cure. cure. (laughs) (laughs) I geek out. I mean, I seriously geek out. And one of the things that I'm working diligently on is transparency because we're all raising money for groups and that needs to be done. But when you see that there's still no cure and we don't hear that, okay, they have three clinical trials going on right now and it's isolate cells or stem cell, whatever. I mean, if as a person with type one diabetes, who's not in this industry, if once a month I could read something in layman's terms that shared what was going on. And if the general public understood that these advancements take years to even get to human trials. So we all shake our fists like, why isn't this cheaper? Why don't we? Well, there's a lot that goes into that. And so 
I'm excited for the future of diabetes. And I say this a lot to parents of children that are newly diagnosed. Their quality of life is going to be incredible. Um, so when I was diagnosed ages ago, I mean, I gave two different shots a day, cloudy and clear insulin. I was on a fairly strict diet. Uh, I tested for ketones about the time that I was diagnosed. The first glucometer came out, which was a shit show and very painful and a nightmare. And I lied about testing my blood sugar at times because it was so stressful. You know, now today, the glucometers and other things, it's just even though it sucks, I'm not going to lie, but it's a lot easier than it was 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. So that gives me hope too for the newly diagnosed. Mm. Are there any sort of routines that you had found yourself in growing up with diabetes before the tech had advanced? So now you obviously have grown with your diabetes, the medication, the treatment, the tech has advanced also, but are there any sort of older routines that you would stick to from when you were a child or a teenager? I, uh, that's a good question. Um, one thing that I have chosen in my lifestyle, and this is such a hot topic in depending on all, what diets and all the other things is I have in my earlier years, low carb didn't exist. I mean, I didn't even know what that was. Everything was diet Coke, diet everything. So <laughs> I made personal decisions and to the point of almost being in so intense that I would give myself a hard time. And I don't know how to word that other than if I didn't work out, I would shame myself. So a workout regimen was big to me, almost to a fault. I chose a different diet growing up at 14. I decided to cut out beef and pork. And so I cut out some of the animal fats and things like that. But that was more environmentally, like my mindset there versus had nothing to do with diabetes. But as I got older, and my doctors would say, hey, the lifestyle choices that you've made have made a great impact on your diabetes care. So um, I currently eat a, a low carb diet. I because and it had nothing to do with diabetes right off the bat, but it was, I would eat, let's just say some sourdough bread with my eggs for breakfast and your podcast that I listened to today about the pancakes versus the smoothie. I would never sit and eat a, a plate full of pancakes because I would feel bad. Yeah. I mean, I could give all the insulin in the world, but it's going to give me a headache. Um, I know I'm going to ride high. I don't know how long it's going to be in my system. So I think about things and granted, like I said, walking science projects, some days I get it. And some days I'm like, where did this come from? I mean, um, and, and, and for the newly diagnosed too, you got to factor in other things like stress, hormones, the temperature outside, uh, are you dehydrated? So I think that I just try to live my best life and still enjoy things. Like I, I love my wine. I mean, there's, I'm not perfect by any means. And I, I think for each of us, you have to figure out, You've got to be a science project, test things. Um, so when you eat something or you feel bad one day, okay, well, let's think about what I put into my body today. Why am I feeling bad? So yeah, that's, I've also been really big on supplements and vitamins as an adult because most people with diabetes don't know that we are vitamin D and potassium deficient. It's a part of the disease. Well, no doctor has ever told me that. It was a naturopathic person or whatever. So anywho, um, yeah. It's, it's interesting to, to hear what you're saying because it sounds 
so similar to everything that I say on my, po- on my podcast and so similar <laughs> to everything that I believe in, that I really, really believe in. I say so often that all type 1 diabetes is the same, but no type 1 diabetic is the same. We're all different. And there's no one size fits all. Yeah. And it's refreshing to hear you say how you've tried this, you've tried that, you've cut out this, you consistently analyze this. Why did I feel bad yesterday? What can I do today to prevent that? It's just constantly that trial and error, trial and error with type 1 diabetes. And I, was, I heard a podcast with, I think it was Kyle Kondoff. Is that how you Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was listening to that podcast and you guys were talking about how Essentially, what, what we're talking about here, how no diabetic is the same, and it's about finding what fits right for you. And I, I often believe, and how I live, I kind of build my routine around my diabetes, but also build my diabetes around my routine. Yes. So yeah. I have a very rigid, very stringent routine that fits my lifestyle well. I'm very happy. I'm very active. I enjoy what I do but it slots in with my diabetes management perfectly. So I know if I'm stressed, I'm going to see a spike here. I know how to prevent that. I know if I exercise at this time, I might see a drop, but I can counteract that with a certain amount of carbohydrate. So when you say that it's a walking science experiment, it's spot on. And it's, it's exactly how living with type 1 diabetes is. And we kind of got straight into the conversation here tonight that I didn't even do an introduction because I was, I was loving the conversation so much. And <laughs> so I'll have, to, I'll have to go back and do another introduction at the start. Right, I get it. But it's amazing to hear how you seem to have really struggled with it initially. And now it's a major part of your life. It's not just the medical side of your life. It's your career. It's your passion. You are offering so much valuable insight and experience to thousands of diabetics all around the world. (laughs) And a question that I wanted to ask you, and and I'm looking forward to talking about this because it's something that I'm doing too. So you had left, I think you had stepped down from executive (laughs) director in 2015. (laughs) What, is that correct? Yeah, Uh, I stepped down as executive director. To basically pursue diabetes full-time yeah and there was a yeah okay there's a couple of layers to that and i'll be short and sweet (laughs) so i founded a nonprofit arts organization in my hometown uh, because i wanted to see the culture grow and so i it was my own nonprofit i did that for 10 plus years helped build the arts district in norman oklahoma it was awesome it was a great it was a great opportunity and i learned so much through that process and during that same time, I started the Diabetes Daily Grind. Um, and we just started the blog. I don't know if we'd started the podcast. Oh, we had just launched the podcast. And I was finding more passion in talking about life with diabetes. And I found it too. At, at, at the end of my career choice there, it was the right path for me to take because I knew I, was, I could make a bigger impact. And so I left there, took a great vacation to Hawaii and took some time off to think about what, how I wanted to, what this career was going to look like. Fast forward a year or so, and I took a a position as associate director for the first 
Adult Wellness Center in Oklahoma City, which was for people age 50 and beyond. It was a tax increment funded, incredible project. And I was the second person hired and we developed all of the programming and everything for that. When I left there after two years, there were 5,000 plus members and it gave me an incredible insight to the type two diabetes community because of the demographic. So I was hosting um, support groups regularly, shed the shame, let's talk about diabetes. And it was awesome. And so that was just like a side project, that full-time job to what I was doing and so passionate about with the Diabetes Daily Grind. And when I left there, I knew that I had a different perspective because I had a new respect for people with type two, which in previous years, I, I spoke ill of that disease because I've had the ignorance of it's you're you're fat, you know, you're not eating right. And and that's just not the case. So yeah, I hope I answered your question. (laughs) (laughs) So when did you decide to kind of just make that jump down fully? Was there any sort of challenge that you faced at the start of that before you could fully kind of jump right into the diabetic world? Yeah, I think it was, um, I want to say podcast episode 65. I made it, I, I, it's been ages, so I don't really recall. But when Ryan, my co-founder of the Diabetes Daily Grind and co-host of the podcast, he was in medical school through the whole time, which was awesome uh, for various reasons. But he was leaving to go on his residency and he was going to move to California and we had to make a decision. He was going to step away and we had been talking about this for years and we kind of knew that's what was going to happen. But I'm a do-gooder <laughs> to a fault and getting messages from people saying, you're changing my life and thank you for talking about this. I don't feel alone. I just thought, man, this is like the universe's way of like slapping me on the head and saying, this is your calling. And so I decided go big or go home. And so I literally have sacrificed everything to pursue this. But at the end of the day, I'd much rather make someone's life better than drive a Tesla. (laughs) Um, That's not a fair uh, comparison, but I I knew that I was making a difference and that, and that I found my calling in life, I guess. So people often talk about how others inspire them to do things and others kind of give them that boost to go off on their own or follow their dreams in a sense. Was there anybody who was your diabetic inspiration or was it receiving these messages from people that you essentially may not have even known? I would say the latter of the two options there. I didn't really have a diabetes person in particular. I had the pleasure of getting to know like Scott Johnson and Mike Hoskins and some other people that were way ahead of me in this game. And Scott Johnson is like literally a pioneer. God love the guy. He's awesome. Um, no, but yeah, the random message or somebody stopping me in a grocery store and saying, I saw you speak at a JDRF event in another town. I just want you to know uh, what a difference it made. And I want to go back to and answer the same question when it comes to talking about the, uh, what the science project is like. Last November, I had the privilege of being the premier guest speaker at a JDRF event, a crowd of 500 plus people. I was terrified. I had my team with me. Um, it was awesome. 
and I get up on stage and start crying just right off the bat. I'm an emotional wreck. And I show them my Dexcom and it was 376. And I was like, listen, I did not get a good night's sleep last night because I was nervous. I haven't eaten a single thing this morning and I've got insulin on board, lots of it. So let's just see how this goes. But I want you to know right now, as I give you this speech, I'm not going to be the great speaker that I had hoped to be. I'm going to do my best, but right now my body is fighting me. And, and let's get through this. And so it was like, you know, I was brutally honest. And I, a dad like literally belted out of the thing as soon as we wrapped, wrapped up and just was bawling. And he came up and he said, I have given my daughter a hard time for 12 years about why she couldn't figure out why her blood sugar was high. He was, I never even knew that stress was a part of it. He was like, so I just apologized to my daughter for riding her ass when I thought that she could be doing more. And it was like, that changed my life. But he could understand. So that's why I do what I do. It's a strange reward, not reward, but an amazing satisfaction to get these sort of responses or messages from people. And I haven't got as many as you would in person, but I get some on, on Instagram and email. Yeah. And it's, it's unbelievable to receive these messages from people who you have never met, but they sometimes say how much of, like, there was a message I got recently off a girl who said she had never met another diabetic in person. And she had listened to my yeah. podcast and she felt as if I was the first diabetic who had spoken to her, which, yeah. which is, it's, yeah, it's just, an, it's an unbelievable feeling. What sort of advice would you have for somebody who maybe is newly diagnosed and might have a dad like that girl did who doesn't necessarily understand how difficult it can be living with this? Is there anything you could offer as advice to somebody like that? To the actual person living with diabetes, yes, I would say, uh, and this is, a, this is a quote, actually, I'm going to say two things, but a quote from Rev Run, Run DMC, do your best and forget the rest. Um, because I do my best every single day, and some days that works out really well, and other days it doesn't. And what I try to do now is let it roll off my shoulders. My blood sugar is not a judgment on me as a person. Um, I forgive myself when I make those mis- If there is a mistake made or I choose the pancakes over the smoothie, um, just things like that. So give yourself a break, give yourself a break. And one of the, in a wellness retreat I took a few years ago is, uh, remind yourself that my body is perfectly imperfect. So the judgment on yourself between the numbers and the A1C or, you know, I'm, I'd like to lose 10 pounds. Just love your body exactly as it is and really focus on the mental health and the other things will hopefully fall into place because when you get your head right, your body listens. And that's a work in progress. That's an absolute work in progress. I often feel that working on the head stuff is just like working on the physical stuff. It's like you need to train yourself 
every day for certain feelings or emotions that you might feel. And particularly when you're living with type one diabetes, because as we both know, Amber, it's very full on all of the time. And if, as you say, you're not kind of giving yourself a break, you're not going easy on yourself. It's easy to get bogged down and, and judge yourself on the numbers that you see on your phone or your blood sugar meter, because it's easy to kind of get yourself in a funk if you see the numbers that you don't want to see or that you weren't expecting, because sometimes you can work so hard to keep things steady and you can, you can train and you can walk and you can eat the foods that you, you think are going to benefit you and it can still be off. Yeah. So a big part of that is, is identifying the fact that every day isn't going to be perfect. <laughs> no matter what you do, <laughs> every day isn't going to be perfect. So go easy on yourself and just do what you can each day to keep the numbers <laughs> where you want them. I'm going to ask you yeah. one more question, Amber, before we head off. I always like to end my podcast with this question because I like to end things on a positive note as, as they always are, <laughs> but not that this wasn't positive. I just, I just love this question. If you had the opportunity to thank diabetes for something, what would that be? Oh, I would say diabetes has definitely, uh, I'd say thank you for giving me the passion and Oh, what's the, what are the words? I am so driven. I think 90% of that is due to my diabetes management because I did what I had to do, even on the days when I didn't want to do it. And that sucks a lot of the time, but I'm so driven that I don't know if, if, if I had diabetes, if I would be this dedicated to anything um, yeah. And I think it goes back to, you know, I think, like I said earlier, this is my calling for me, this diabetes diagnosis was, I'm not gonna say a gift, but it gave me a, uh, I know when I leave this earth, I did something good. Absolutely. Well, you already are, and you should be proud of what you're doing and keep doing what you're doing because you're helping thousands of people out there, even thousands of people that you haven't met yet. <laughs> so keep that passion, keep that work ethic and keep that dedication. Amber, thank you so much for coming on. I really, really appreciate it. It was great to talk to you. Thank you so much for having me. And anytime you want to can travel and come to Texas, we'd love to have you. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I'll definitely take you up on that. All right. Have a good day. You too. Take it easy. Bye-bye.